There we go. There's Ryan. I can hear you. How's it going? Good. Good. Hey, um, man, uh, Flat Earth Twitter is an incredible place. It is. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, one thing I was, I was uh, thinking about, because, you know, you're a published author. Uh, I feel like there's an open market for, like, if someone wrote, like, ghost written a an exp- you know there was all those explorers who went to Antarctica yeah. and maybe somebody wrote a memoir about meeting people from the other side of these ice walls. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that would sell like really aliens well. or something. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, I saw that one map of the ice wall and then endless expanse on the other side i'm like holy crap we need to get over that ice wall <laughs> it's, uh, that was awesome no t- <laughs> and, it, it, and it speaks to you know all, all these different countries we have all these different conflicts whatever but if they could work together to keep us out of from the ice walls i think there's hope for yeah. You know, like we we can find ways to work. They've been together. doing they've been doing it for centuries too. So it's like ever since whenever they discovered the Earth was a globe, which was like two thousand years ago. So it's pretty impressive global conspiracy for a not quite specified reason too. Like it's not quite <laughs> clear why they've dedicated so much to fooling us that the world is round. Which I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting space to interact with those guys (laughs) (laughs) for sure for sure all right uh welcome everybody to another episode of the lewis and lucas podcast i am a half of your podcast lucas with me as always is lewis and how are you doing today excellent excellent good back back at it here in 2023 so uh, back 2023 on this very round earth of ours so you claim um, so you claim <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> um we are uh ryan miller who i've been uh following him for uh, a while i met him i think on it was on twitter which is where i meet a lot of really interesting people we we both follow euro dollar university jeff snyder emil kalinowski I had no idea what euro dollars were, and when I talk with people about euro dollars, it's uh, it's always interesting learning experience. It's the global economy. People talk about it, and oftentimes, what I have found, whether you know either Keynesians uh, or modern monetary theorists, people on the left kind of spectrum of economics, and then there's people on the uber right the Austrian school of economics, more libertarian minded. They both have really, really interesting ideas, but a lot of times their economic models are, can, can be so um, simplistic that they can get stuff wrong. Uh, and there's a lot of complexities to the economy and, and following Ryan has been really interesting because he does some really, really deep dives into different economic indicators you know when we tweeted out the space i posted he had published a report about what he's expecting in 2023 it's very detailed he shows you all the different economic indicators that he's using he shows you how they've these indicators have predicted certain economic events in the past and based on that information looking at what these indicators are showing and what he's expecting to 
see in 2023. So he's he's going to be he he's got a poor connection right now, so he'll be on in a minute. But yeah, um, I don't know, Lewis. Like, what what are your what are your expectations for 2023? Are we because there's a lot of like I know Peter Schiff and a lot of people are looking at like the job performance and like, yeah. you know, gold and there's there's just all kinds of things going on. It's a little hard to for the for the layperson at least to have a confident expectation of 2023. Yeah, I always, uh, anytime I start to predict like horrible apocalypse about to happen, I always remember the Norm MacDonald line where he said his dad had, when he was a kid growing up in the 1950s or whatever, 60s, um, he says dad had a book on his coffee room table on reasons the the economy is going to collapse in five years or something like that. That <laughs> was back in the 1960s. So, um, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I as far back as I can remember, everybody kind of was predicting the apocalypse was, uh, was about to happen, but, uh, um, and there's a big part of me, as you know, that is in that camp where I'm like, nothing we do as a economic, uh, in the economic world makes a lot of sense. Um, but, um, on the other hand, I, I also recognize that, you know, we've gotten this far and I feel like, uh, it, will it will the fallout happen this year? Probably not. You know, it'll probably be just another year. But who knows? It could be any time. But I mean, my my if I had to guess what this year would be, I would guess still some decent inflation. I would guess housing market will continue to stagnate, if not go down a little bit. And um, yeah, I don't know. I would guess recession is probably going to happen. Th- those are my my basic guesses my uh, i would say there's about a 15 percent chance we all have to like protect our homes with ak-47s and and survive that <laughs> one <laughs> yeah yeah hopefully it hopefully it doesn't come to that but yeah it does and and looking at the report ryan published it looks like yeah there a recession appears to be on the horizon here but um hey ryan i sent you the invite to speak on the spaces so once you accept that, then your mic will, then you'll get a mic and be able to speak on the space. Um, I want, and th- for people who aren't used to reading economic reports like this, it can be a little, you, you might feel a little out of your element trying to read it, but I, I really like this. I'm going to read this from Ryan's report here. I think this is important when you're trying to look at the economy and make predictions. Monetary policy impacts monetary aggregates and interest rates. Changes in interest rates are felt first among the most cyclical areas of the economy, housing and construction, and then later corporations through higher interest expense and reduced profit margins. That leads to capital expenditure cuts. A slowdown in the volume of activity in housing leads to declines in construction jobs. As the housing activity is reduced and demand for durable goods falls, it filters through to the manufacturing sector. So he he lays out for you why when people talk about interest rates and how that will affect different parts of the economy. So when you hear news pundits talk about, oh, this happened in housing, this whatever, how do we, you know, what's the framework that we can use to understand what this ultimately means? So here, <clears throat> Ryan, we got got you on here. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, I had mentioned I I started following you 
um, Jeff Snyder, Eurodollar University, and then you were publishing a lot about the Fed trying to really understand like the nuts and bolts of what they're doing, whatever. So yeah, if you want to, if you won't mind giving us a little intro and what got you into what you're doing today. Yeah. Um, like I said, thanks for having me. Um, well, I've been, I've been trading, day trading since 2015. Um, started off with, with stocks and since about 2017, been day trading Forex. Um, obviously, from my work, I don't really write about that. <laughs> I keep uh, my day trading and macro, I keep those worlds completely separate. Okay. Um, I always had, I guess, this kind of mainstream neo-Keynesian view of the markets just from, you know, reading mainstream articles, watching the news and whatnot. Uh, I never really took a deep dive into it. And then March 2020 happened, and a lot of things didn't make sense to me. Um, and, it, and it caused me to take a deep dive uh, into the markets. And that's when I got into like Jeff Schneider and, and those kind of guys and got into the financial plumbing, um, looking at banks and QE and all the weeds in monetary policy. And, and like I said, the financial plumbing. And, and, and I enjoyed it. A lot of it is very convoluted <laughs> and not very practical. And over, I would say, probably the last year and a half or so, I've actually kind of moved away from the financial plumbing and took a deep dive into the economic cycle. And that's mainly what I study now. I actually discovered that through, I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Basmajan of EPB Research. Um, anyone, okay. anyone who doesn't follow him, highly recommend him. My kind of framework is actually built around his work. He's been studying the economic cycle for years. So the last year and a half, two years, I've been I've been studying the, the economic cycle and the report that you read, it's all based on the economic cycle. Um, coincident indicators, you know, where it tells us where the economy is right now, uh, like income, consumption, production, employment. Those are coincident indicators because they coincide with the tops and bottoms or the peaks and troughs of the economy. And then I study leading indicators, which move before the coincident indicators. They tell us where the economy is likely headed. And that's the, that's the report. Um, that's what the report consists of. That's, so that's really cool. So that's, that's like, that's three different worlds. Like, so there's the day trading, there's the actual plumbing of, and I like that you word it that way, the, pl like the plumbing, like how it actually works. You know, we talked about Bitcoin before there's the idea, the P the, the peer versus peer to peer transactions, whatever. But then you actually look at the underbelly, look how the plumbing of Bitcoin actually works. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. So I, I like that you mentioned the, how our financial markets, the plumbing of it, and then there's the economic cycle. So if you don't mind, talk, we'll talk first about the financial plumbing. Cause I think there's still a lot of people that, you know, like the, the fed printer go burr, that whole meme. When you look at even the the financial plumbing, even in a little bit, you'll understand that that's not actually what's happening. And then we can get to your to the economic cycles, which I think is really really interesting. The financial plumbing, like that's something that always puzzled me too, because I remember in 2008 when quantitative easing first became a thing, and people are like, "This is hyperinflationary. The dollars are going to go to zero. And here we are, all these years later, hyperinflation hasn't happened. So you're like, okay, what what is the Fed? actually doing and and it seems inflationary but it's not it's not doesn't seem hyper like what's what's actually going on so I mean, if you were to try and explain what the fed 
has been doing it for the that's which is a, a monumentous task i i admit but if you could try to explain briefly what the fed is actually doing and why that per, that austrian economic perception isn't quite accurate yeah i mean obviously the common um idea or the common you know narrative behind it is you know the fed prints money injects it into the economy we have more money chasing fewer goods inflation right well the fed doesn't actually print money right they don't print the currency that me and you use at the store whether it's physical currency or um Digital. Everything's pretty much digital these days, right? 97% of transactions are all digital, but they don't even create that kind of money. What they create are what are called bank reserves, and those reserves can't leave the banking system. So they stay within They stay within the banking system. So they create bank reserves. Now, commercial banks, that's where the money printing comes from, right? The commercial banking side. When they create uh, a new loan, they are loaning new money into existence. So that's when the money... The supply of money expands. The money supplies when commercial banks are loaning new money into existence. Now, when the Fed creates reserves, they swap those reserves with the commercial banks for U.S. Treasuries. So the commercial banks have U.S. Treasuries on their balance sheet. The Fed creates uh, bank reserves, and that sits on their balance sheet. Then they do a swap. They remove the Treasury from the commercial bank's balance sheet and they replace it with the reserve, which is a very, very safe asset. And the banks can use these reserves to, to lend against, right? Because every, with the balance sheet, I don't want to really get too much into it, but there's two sides of it, right? Assets and liability, liabilities. When you create, when a bank creates a, a new loan, right? They create a new deposit. That's uh, their liability because they have to pay that. Now they need an offsetting asset and that's where the reserves come in. So in this world of QE, they've created trillions of reserve reserves, so trillions of assets for the commercial banks to, to lend safely against. However, they need to lend. And in an environment of weak growth, um, they haven't been lending at the same rate they were prior to the global financial crisis. If you were to look at loans and leases and, and credit, uh, we are way off the trend um, prior to the global financial yeah. crisis. Um, so they are, I, I saw that. Oh, no, no, ahead, no, sorry. no, go ahead. I was just kind of, kind of reiterating. Um, I saw, I, well, I saw you, you had posted the M2 chart where the, yeah, the money growth is, has declined precipitously, which is concerning. And it, this, this aspect is really interesting too. People, people kind of understand fractional banking, right? The, I like what, if I have a $25,000 credit card limit, it's not, that the bank has $25,000 in money or bank reserves or sitting at the bank that I'm using my credit. They create that credit out of, you know, we say out of thin air or whatever, but that's, that's essentially what's happening. Yeah. That money did not, that $25,000 credit card limit that I'm using did not exist prior to the bank extending that to me. Correct. Yeah. And then if you um, were to pay and- that off, then... The interest gets stays into the system, and then that initial twenty five thousand disappears. <laughs> now, one of the models that the Fed seems to use is like if we print all this, we do all this QE, we because we want to keep interest rates low because we want money to be accessible because that will help the economy get back into you know to grow back to what we were supposed to be doing, right? But that but you were as you were pointing out. 
it's almost counterintuitive and it hurts, especially when the growth isn't there, having these low interest rates being kind of artificially created by the Fed. Yeah. And what's interesting actually is when, um, yeah, so they, that's one of their goals, right? The lower interest rates is kind of st- to try to stimulate the economy. What's interesting, interesting is that during their QE episodes, um, interest rates actually rise, right? And when they're not doing QE, interest rates actually fall. And one of the reasons for that is kind of comes back to psychology. Since 2009, 2010, you know, Wall Street's had this mindset uh, that the Fed has our back, right? So if the Fed's doing QE, now we can take on risk. We can, you know, buy stocks, buy risky assets. And then uh, because of that risk that's being taken, you know, it's initially inflationary because, okay, people are spending now, uh, corporations are willing to spend, the Fed has our back. It's initially inflationary and that's why interest rates actually rise. And then when they stop doing QE, okay, the Fed doesn't have our back anymore. We need to get into safe assets. Interest rates start, start falling. So it's kind of kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> well, what was it? What was the initial question? I'm sorry. No, yeah, it's I guess trying to understand what the Fed is trying to do and why it isn't working. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, what they're trying to do is obviously stimulate the economy, give the banks incentive to to lend. They're t- removing treasuries from their balance sheet in hopes that they're going to replace them with riskier assets, lo- meaning loans to consumers. But since the global financial crisis, banks do not want to end up like Lehman or Bear Stearns, so they're very they're very cautious these days. Um, and like I said, those reserves, a lot of it just gets trapped into the financial system. And he, here's the thing: when a crisis happens, the Fed since since 2009, any kind of weak spots we've had in the economy, the Fed has stepped in with some type of QE, cutting rates, whatever it is, and they've propped up financial assets. They're not propping up real assets. So if you were to go and buy some construction equipment, for instance, that's on you, right? The Fed's not going to save you from that. So when the Fed does QE, this whole uh, period of QE since 2009 has signaled to corporate managers, okay, you know, the Fed has our back, not in the real economy, but in the financial economy. So we're going to take resources, capital away from the real economy. And we're going to pump it into financial assets. And that's why a big reason why we've seen financial assets rise and rise and make new all-time highs. Yet 2009 through the first quarter of 2020 was one of the weakest growth periods in U.S. history. That makes a lot of sense. Like, And so people who may not understand that the Fed doesn't make money, doesn't understand that commercial banks create the majority of the money that you and I use – uh, definitely check out those ideas because then I, I try and tell people that and then then explain the euro dollar because I, I think that has an effect too on on why the Fed doesn't have as much control over the economy as as people think they do. Euro dollars, dollars that are created by non-U.S. financial institutions, right? Like a Japanese manufacturer and buying buying oil from Saudi and the financial institutions are all using dollars and and people talk about like oh you know china the, everybody's trying to move away from the dollar it's not as simple like they can't just decide like hey as of today we no longer accept dollars would you be able to explain all like why transitioning away from the dollar as a global reserve currency is not as easy as just being like hey we don't like dollars anymore <laughs> well a couple of reasons you know even even transactions that 
take place in Chinese yuan or Russian rubles or whatever it is, at the end of the day, they get they get settled in dollars at some point down the road, right? But the reason it's not easy to move away from the global reserve currency is because it's so deeply entrenched in the econ- in the global economy, right? Global trade takes place. Um, all these transactions happen in U.S. dollars. There are literally probably hundreds of trillions of transactions and contracts that are <clears throat> denominated in U.S. dollars. To try to undo all that, I mean, it's hard to even wrap your mind around undoing because we don't even of know dollars in U.S. dollar denominated transactions. There, there was that. I think Milton Friedman had published a paper in the '70s trying to explain euro dollars, and they even like they knew it was a problem you know, 50 years ago, and had no idea how to measure how big that market is. And, and we still, <clears throat> 50 years later, we still don't know how big this market is. To your point, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we don't. Um, you know, very, very conservative estimates, like by the BIS, have put dollar-denominated debt something at 13 trillion. There's other estimates over a hundred trillion, yeah, we, we really have no idea. So it's so deeply entrenched in the economy, right? It, at the end of the day, US dollars are the underlying collateral to the entire global monetary system. When, when there's weaknesses or cracks in the system, capital flows to the dollar, right? It's not easy to undo that. Not to, and then there's the whole political thing in the US military, which kind of backs the US dollar. I don't want to get into that whole side of it, but yeah, just to simply put it, it's just too deeply entrenched to to, to undo. Sure, you uh, you can get into that side of it. <laughs> I'm always very interested in what the U.S. military is doing. Well, but well, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't like uh, I don't I try to stay away from talking politically. But to be honest, I don't have a deep understanding of that side of it to okay to re- to really give you something that's gonna that's gonna make your Saturday morning. So sure, sure. Um, <laughs> Sorry about I, that. Uh, yeah, Lucas and I have talked about all this stuff uh, before, just between the two of us. And I'm, I'm a little more apocalyptic in my thoughts on like stupid uh, uh, monetary policy. And you know, my general thought on a lot of the stuff is that yeah, it's it's very interesting. And the euro dollar, um, you know, actually Lucas kind of clued me into that. I'd heard the term before, but never uh, really um, thought about it much. Um, and um, but. I guess my pushback on all this is that ultimately if the U S government is spending more than we take in, you know, so if our balance sheet is negative um, and we're, we're going further and further into debt, in essence, we're adding dollars to the system, right? There's dollars being added to the system. And then in addition to that, if we're backing loans, um, whether it's through financial assets or whatever, um, that creates looseness in the banks that wouldn't otherwise be there. And that's an interesting point that you made about the fact that it actually sometimes works the opposite way. But ultimately, I think if if tomorrow the U.S. government said, hey, we're not going to back anybody for anything ever again, and you know, if, if uh, you, you need additional liquidity or whatever, you're on your own, um, I think that a lot of interest rates will go way, way, way up. You know, And I think you'd ultimately get much tighter uh, – uh, monetary policy. And so I guess all that put together is, I, you know, when I think of the risk of high inflation, and we are seeing high inflation, maybe it's not hyperinflation, but we're seeing very high inflation right now. And I think the risk of that continuing to go up and maybe getting a lot worse, I think is a real risk, at least until the point where we 
as a as a nation realize some of these kind of fundamental factors and i think that you know the additional money um going into the system through bank loans through euro dollars etc um is a multiplier of the bad economic policy we have so in other words th- that stuff would still exist if we didn't have bad fiscal policies as a nation but it it could not exist in the same to the same degree um the the fewer you know go back to those you know adam smith fundamentals you know that it's a supply and demand ultimately um behind the dollar bill and if there's fewer dollars available it's got to go up eventually in the overall cost and yeah there's a multiplier because all the banking system etc but anyway that's a long rant so that's like my pushback um to you and to lucas here so uh, i'll i'll be the uh Austrian economist here, but like that's that's my thought. Yeah, I mean, let's. uh, Yeah, there's obviously you you talked about there's a lot of different directions you could go there. Let's maybe just go with inflation, right? That's been probably the biggest topic or theme the last couple of years. Um, So obviously the fiscal stimulus that took place after you know after COVID or after the COVID shutdowns was extremely inflationary, right? highest inflation we've had in 40 years, right? They not only shut down the economy, disrupted supply chains, they handed out money to many people who who actually didn't need it, right? Through stimulus checks and then through the PPP loans, which they, you know, they backed the loans and the the banks actually had no problem lending. Okay, it's backed by the government. Here, here's free money to people who didn't need it. Five small businesses were getting five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 and, you know, they're doing extensions on their homes and buying goods. And that's why we saw this huge uh, spike in inflation. So to me, that type of a policy, if let's say we get into a recession this year and they respond with that type of policy again, yeah, we're going to get more inflation like we did the last two years. However, to me, that's a more political thing. If, if we get that type of inflation, it's going to be because of the political choices that these um, policymakers decide on. So for me, if we look, take a more economic uh, viewpoint, if we look at the longer term fundamentals, these kind of secular fundamentals, which have, um, which are bigger trends in the market. So my report that I did is more on the six to 18 month trends. These secular trends are like three to five year plus, the biggest two being demographics and, and debt, right? We have a very, we have an over indebted economy. Uh, we're very highly indebted as a, as a nation, really as a globe. Um, and then we have in most of the developed world, Japan, China, uh, the EU here in the U.S., we have aging demographics, right? So we have a, a population that's getting older and we have and on top of that, we're highly indebted. Those two factors are very disinflationary. So and as we saw from 2009 through 2020, it was a very low inflationary period. So we were in a disinflationary period. And really since the 1980s, we've been in this disinflationary Hey, hey can period. I interrupt you just to ask Yeah, you go question. ahead. Um, why is the aging population disinflationary? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, so, so the economy kind of cycles. Um, so there's basically four main components to a developed economy. You have income, consum- consumption, production, and employment. Basically, more income leads to more consumption, which leads to more production, which leads to more employment, which filters back to more income and so on. And then that works in the opposite direction, right? Less income, less consumption, less production, less employment. So 
as people get older, um, they spend less, right? <clears throat> so they consume less. And the economy runs on volume, unit volumes of consumption, meaning kind of the volume of transactions. If less transactions are taking place, well, then there's and less need for are production. They, are, and they're consuming less because like they're, they're not buying homes like they, are, they already own their home. Is that kind of why? Yeah, that's a part of it. They're not buying homes. They're, you know, their kids are growing up. The, the biggest, um, the largest spending group is the 25 to 54-year-old bracket. Right. That's where most of the consumption happens. So as we get older, a larger and larger part, portion of our population is becoming older than 54 and, and they spend significantly less. And then when they get over 65, they spend even less. So the older they get, the less they spend. And as we get in an older um, population, um, we're, they're spending a lot less. So they're consuming a lot less, which requires a lot less production, which then leads to less employment, which then filters back to less income. And then on top of that, um, a lot of resources go to the older population, right? Um, whether it's medical, social security, right? So a lot of the debt that the government takes on um, has to go for towards these social benefits like Medicaid, Medicare, and social security and whatnot. So as the population gets older and more and more government spending has to, has to go towards this, pop, this population group that's spending less and less, consuming less and less, right? So a lot of the government spending is unproductive, okay, which drags down uh, economic growth. And growth, or I'm sorry, inflation follows growth with a lag. So as growth get, gets weaker and weaker, Right. Con consumption gets weaker and weaker. It exposes excess capacity and then the rate of inflation comes down. And that's largely what we've seen over the past 40 years and especially the past 20 years as our economy has gotten older and older. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, um, in terms of the, you know, the, the U.S., we have a lot of government programs. We send billions to Ukraine. We have these endless wars. We talk about whatever. And um, people cite that and, and like what you're saying, like there's all these secular trends, like we're going to hyperinflate ourselves to death. One of my questions, like, OK, let's let's assume that's true for a second. The dollar is also the world's reserve currency, like we talked about earlier. And, the, and there's other economies that have bigger aging problems that have that have way more like. I think our debt to GDP ratio is still under 200%, which it's, it's ridiculous that it's over a hundred, but it's, we're, but we're the, the is, best of, uh, what is that saying? We're the cleanest of the, of the dirty shirts. Type of thing. That's that. Yeah. So th that, this is where I'm kind of going because like Japan is like over 400% debt to GDP. They're not a world reserve currency. Their population is incredibly aged relative to their workforce. So and they've done if, more Q than we QE than we have. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So if you know the dollar doomsdays, if they were right, wouldn't you expect the yen or some of these other countries that have even more exacerbated problems to collapse first? I could not agree more. Very well said. Right? A lot of a lot of the um, you know arguments or people like to argue against the U.S. dollar. It's going to collapse. We're going to lose reserve currency. They only apply their analysis to the U.S. They don't apply it to Japan and 
in the EU and whatnot who are not only worse demographically than we are, have have worse um, have weaker growth than we do. They have higher debt to GDP levels. And Japan, for instance, has done more QE, right? So if those economies who don't have nearly the demand for their currencies as the U.S. does are not collapsing, why is it that the U.S. is anywhere near collapse? So I, I couldn't agree more uh, on that front. Um, I'm gonna keep being the the guy pushing back. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you and you and Lucas agree, but let me push back a little bit. Um, first of all, like I I feel like with all of these things, um, you can go back and look at like Venezuela from tweets from ten years ago is like, oh, they figured it out. Like, oh, like Michael Moore is tweeting, we should be looking to Venezuela as our model for the world, etc. And Obviously, the answer was, yeah, they figured it out so far. And it's kind of like the guy jumping out of the building where he's like halfway down. And he's like, this was not so bad. Everybody said I was going to die if I jumped off the building. But look, I'm fine. Um, like, And I feel like there's this element of, hey, we've we've done this QE and there's no problems. We've, you were 200% GDP and there's no problems. And look, you know, like, and I, I feel like the the necessary additional word has to be yet right like, like there's no problems yet like all this we've done all this crazy stuff that 50 years ago people said would destroy our nation our financial system etc and we did it and nothing happened and like i mean we have got a significant amount of inflation but not the apocalypse that everybody was predicting and so we say oh like so far so good everything's good and i agree that like maybe these other economies will collapse but there's the whole um the illustration that, and I hate to quote Taleb because I hate him now, but like there's the whole quote that uh, Taleb says is like, it's like a bathroom scale. Inflation is like a bathroom scale or like the doctor scale where you switch the, the weight over and nothing happens. And then you switch it a little bit more and nothing happens and you move it a little bit more and nothing happens. And then you hit your weight and it all happens at once. Right. So I feel like we, I feel like we're a little bit like blind men walking towards a cliff, right? And every step we take seems like everything's going okay. And it could be that in 2023, or maybe it's five years out, maybe it's 2028, maybe it's 10 years out. It seems like at some point in time, all the insane stuff we're doing will hit a cliff, right? We've got these demographic things that like Elon Musk has pointed out, you guys have mentioned. Um, I feel like all that stuff is coming, and then throw into the fact that, yeah, U.S. is being insane with our policy and the fact that everybody else is being more insane, I don't know that necessarily makes me feel better about things, right? Like it, in some ways it makes me feel worse where we can't borrow from anybody else. We can't, you know, like there's nobody else that can help us. If, if we go down, everybody goes down. Um, so I, I feel like we're in this situation where, um, yeah, like maybe Japan will blow up tomorrow, right maybe china will blow up tomorrow maybe india will blow up tomorrow and you know that could all happen in one year we could have a global economic meltdown and i agree everybody's tied in with the dollar so like it will be a global meltdown it's not just going to be the u.s and everybody else is fine i think it's going to be a global thing but i i don't know so i'll I'll stop my rant there it's like but that's yeah, kind of no. like my, my concerns on the whole thing. I, I don't I don't disagree. I mean, the whole fiat currency system is designed to fail, right? It just it, it has to get bigger and bigger every year in order to 
to, to survive. So eventually, you know, we're going to have our, our day of, of reckoning. And, you know, like, like Lucas was saying, you know, eventually our, when that day does happen, everywhere else is going to fall besides the U.S. or fall before the U.S. And that's obviously not necessarily a good thing because the U.S. will eventually fall. They'll eventually lose the reserve stat- status. And, yeah, I don't know. That could be five years from now. It could be 150 years from now. Like, I, I don't I don't know. And, you know, I used to I used to get deep in that kind of stuff. Um, but then I realized it doesn't really help me with my portfolio at all. It's not very practical to trade, to, to invest, at least for me. Yeah. So I try to stay away from that. But I, but I don't disagree. Like, eventually, you know, it's all going to come home to roost, so, so to speak. Yeah, but and, when that is, I don't know. The, the, and this is... So I'm glad you're making this point. This when I, if you look at my profile on Twitter, one of my labels I give myself is a Fed shill, because when I, when I try to explain what the Fed is actually doing, and then I get sort of, you know, I don't think Lewis accused us of shilling for the Fed or whatever, but there's, but there is this like deeper implication, like you're defending the status quo. I'm like, I'm just, I, I want to try and understand what is actually happening. I get really concerned, uh, like we were talking earlier about. The the big problem with QE is that it encourages these financial institutions to pump more of their attention, more credit towards financial and assets versus the real economy. That is a huge concern. That's and yeah. and and the fact that they could take toxic assets and stick them overnight in the Fed and 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 exchange when the Fed started allowing other things besides Treasury bonds to stay on their balance sheet, so that you know they're creating collateral with using crap like that their their whole swap line program really scares me i don't know that they 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 have there's like they have some rules about what they allow in their balance sheet but it's not it's that whole mess is concerning and will lead to uh, more and more problems yeah yeah i think uh, i think a lot of that comes like becomes like political who they're going to give swap lines to and who they're not I know the Fed yeah. is technically they're supposed to be a separate entity, but uh, I think they're very influenced politically, and yeah, there, there's there's a lot, a lot, of, a lot that can go wrong uh, in, in in the future. But like 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 we said, uh, given the fact that like some of these countries, like Japan, has been doing the same things we have, they're just much worse situation with QE with debt with weaker growth for they're years ahead of us, so. It, it kind of says to me, okay, like we still have a, a lot longer to go before, before anything kind of unravels. But you never know. Right, right. And I think uh, one thing that's been really interesting when you look at like the Fed, the plumbing, the Fed, you get into those weeds. I think it also helps you to understand like when you hear Bitcoin maxis or cryptocurrency people make their arguments about how the dollar is going to go to zero and we're all going to have to use bitcoin to put gas on our car and buy bread and milk like that's that's not there's like fundamental misunderstandings about currencies uh how like how money is created all those things i think you know your work looking at the plumbing going into those weeds helps to alleviate a lot of those bad ideas that would make you think that you know bitcoin's the answer uh what what, what do you think yeah i I've, I've stayed away from that conversation for a long time now. Um, yeah, I just, I don't even think it's in the re- realm of reality <laughs> anymore. Sure. Um, I mean, not now, 
like whatever Bitcoin is going to be 10 years from now, like, I don't know, maybe like I, I'm not an expert in, in Bitcoin, the direction it's headed. But I mean, it's just obviously I'm pointing out obvious things here. Everyone knows it's just way too volatile. Right. You, you can't have the underlying collateral to the system up and down 10, 20 percent and 30 percent in, in days. Right. It, it doesn't work that way. So, so that's one big problem. Uh, for it, so until until that settles out, there's not even going to be a, there's not even a realistic discussion, and then there could be all sorts of other problems. But yeah, and that's one of the, I, I think one of that. the fundamental problems with Bitcoin is like the whole purpose of any kind of exchange is you give me something that I know the value, I give you something you know the value, and it's going to be somewhat similar five minutes after we have that exchange, and with Bitcoin it's like it could go to zero tomorrow. It could go to a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow. And like, it's depending on which way you think it's going, it's going to change how long you want to hold on to that. And, you know, I remember hearing a story as Bitcoin was going up and up and up where a guy bought a house with Bitcoin, which sounds like a great deal. You know, he, he, you know, had a couple Bitcoin and he bought a house with it. And then like a year later, that house essentially because on paper Bitcoin had gone up so much that house cost cost him millions of dollars. You know, like he would have been way better off holding on to it. And conversely, like if you sold your house when Bitcoin was at sixty seven thousand or whatever it was, and you held on to that Bitcoin, well, you just gave your house away for free, basically. So yeah. um, you know, it's 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 a it doesn't work unless it's stable. And I think one of the big challenges is everybody that's buying Bitcoin is doing it for it not to be stable. They expect it to go up, right? Like they're oh, not yeah. buy they're not buying it like you would buy yeah. a dollar bill where you go to the bank and you get a dollar bill out. That's because you expect it to be stable and you know roughly with that dollar bill I can buy a candy bar tomorrow. Well, with Bitcoin, like you're buying it in the hopes that you can buy fifty candy bars tomorrow. And it's just it like it's it's not like a currency. It's a a weird uh, uh, junk bond kind of crazy investment where you're hoping yeah, that it, it, it skyrockets. Yeah, I agree. I think Bitcoin is a result of excess liquidity floating around in the, in the financial system, right? Especially since the, the stimulus was passed. Think about it. 2020, 2021, pump stimulus into the system. Bitcoin shot up like a rocket. The Fed uh, has been tightening, has been removing liquidity from the system. And Bitcoin's uh, on the roller coaster back down. So, yeah. um, can I uh, let me ask a question on that and get your thoughts? Um, I am not as skeptical of Peter Schiff as Lucas is, but um, he obviously is all in for gold. You know, like gold investment. You know, big part of his portfolio, mining, etc. Um, gold seems like it's a lot more stable than Bitcoin, right? So, like, if you for wanted sure. an alternative to the dollar. Gold, generally speaking, over the last 100 years has has adjusted for inflation. Yeah, there's some ups and downs, and it actually has not done very well over this last inflation cycle. But as a whole, it's I mean, it's in the same ballpark as it was. I think it went, it, yeah, it went sure. from 2,000 bucks an ounce down to 1,800 bucks an ounce. But yeah. I mean, it's more, not, stable it, than, it, more stable yeah, than Bitcoin. It didn't go to. Twenty thousand dollars an ounce, and then down to one thousand dollars an ounce. Right? It's it's been fairly fairly stable. So, what in your mind? What's the difference between gold and Bitcoin in terms of um, hedge or whatever for inflation? 
or do you view them as the same? Well, I don't, I don't think either is a hedge for inflation. I know, I don't, I know, obviously the big thing was all Bitcoin is a hedge for inflation, right? Because it was going up during 2020, 2021. Like I said, I think that was just a result of the excess, excess liquidity. You know, we had inflation running higher in 2022 and Bitcoin falling, right? Um, gold, I think gold does better in times of like crisis, right? When the system uh, gets put under pressure, I think that's when gold shines a lot, shines a lot more than uh, it does during inflationary periods. Um, but I think the biggest difference, I think you already, you already said it, Lewis, uh, is just the stability of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're not comparable in that sense. Um, so let's we, we so we've been talking plumbing uh, of the financial systems, and I want to get to what you're you know because your fo- you said your focus now is the big macro picture, help understanding yeah, the, the economic, economic cycles. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like Peter P- talked about Peter Schiff, he said like the jobs report that just came out is not because people are actually holding on to two or three jobs, and I don't know where he got that information from. Whatever. So there's there's just well, what did he say? Going, it's it's because what? So the, he said the job report that this is what he recently tweeted, that the job report that came out that looked like, you know, it, it put some decent numbers, but you can't read into it too much because it doesn't that report doesn't show you that people today are holding down two and three jobs to make ends meet. I don't know where he got because I, I know there's other number. There's other reports that say there's a lot of people that aren't working. So, you know. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with Peter Schiff often. <laughs> but I do agree okay. with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, please go ahead. Because so the two big uh reports, the the biggest the mo- the one that gets the most attention is the non-farm payrolls report. And that report and then well actually before I, I mention that, and the second report is the the employment uh level. Um that's the the second biggest one. Now, so they're they're calculated uh slightly uh, a little differently like the non-farm payrolls report. So if you had uh, three jobs, let's say, that counts on the non-farm payrolls as three different payrolls. So like three jobs. Whereas the employment uh, level report, which is, so the non-farm comes from the establishment survey, I believe, and then employment level comes from the household survey. I hope I didn't mix those up. So the employment level, the household survey, if you had say 10 jobs, well, your one job holder counts you at, uh, one time. And what we've seen over the past several months is a, a bit of a divergence between non-farm payrolls and employment level, where employment level is actually weaker. So it's a, and non-farm payrolls is, is is stronger. So it suggests that we're seeing a lot more uh, job holders with multiple jobs, which which tells us that the you know the jobs market is not as strong as you would think because people tend to get more jobs when when money is tight, right? That, yeah, that that's, makes that's, sense. So that's you, a good so, point. And I think that reflects like my own experience within my circle of friends, my circle of family, is that I think with the inflation we've seen a lot of it is tighter and people are picking up additional jobs. I've seen it. Like yeah. I in you know, or working additional hours or you know, do is so it's it it's there tighter, a, yes, but I don't think it's stronger. Yeah. Tighter, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's and that's interesting. Then, so you can look at these numbers to see that people are holding multiple jobs. Then that's that's it's not something that I knew before. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, all right. So yeah. So yeah. If you it, let's get into your your work then on the economic cycle then. So it looks like you had posted about like the M2, which for people who don't know, that measures the amount of money that the commercial banks are creating. It's not the Fed. It's not the Treasury. It's looking at loans being extended, credit cards being given, banks creating money that then goes into the real economy. That's been trending down. Is, is that where you start or where do you start when you? Yeah, yeah, we could start. We could start there. So you start with I start with uh, kind of monetary policy and then money aggregates like the M2. Right. So obviously the Fed has been removing um, they've been reducing their balance sheets so or removing reserves from the system. Um, they've been raising interest rates, right? Makes obviously borrowing more expensive. So they've been, been been tightening conditions, monetary conditions. M2 has, so the money supply. So why M2 is so important is because it basically captures um, depository accounts. So basically consumer accounts, right? And that's where consumption comes from, consumers, right? So if capital is not getting into consumer accounts, well then, consumption is going to going to suffer that trickles into a production employment and, and so forth. So on like a year over year basis, M2 is actually contracting for the first time. in I don't know how many years it is 30, 40, something, something for a long, it's been a long time. First time that it's, that it's contracting on, the, on a year over year basis. So we're actually have capital is actually being a lot of liquidity that was pumped into the system the last two years is being withdrawn from the system at a very rapid pace at a very rapid pace. So the combination of liquidity withdrawal and higher interest rates, these are longer leading indicators and they can take, you know, 12 months to impact the broader economy. So if you see M2 falling, interest rates rising, you're not going to just make adjustments to your portfolio, right? They're longer leading indicators. So like I said, they're not going to impact the broader economy, the coincident indicators, the cons income, consumption, production, employment. Those four indicators define the growth trend, define the, where the economy currently is. So those won't be impacted to potentially 12 months down the road. So they have a longer lead time. However, monetary policy, these money aggregates, um, impact the cyclical economy first like housing motor vehicles which are most sensitive to changes to sharp changes in interest rates and that's what we've seen um over the past year we've seen um, fed withdrawal liquidity interest rates rise pretty rapidly and we've seen volume the volume of activity in the housing market collapse right uh home sales new home sales existing home sales are both down about roughly 40 percent um, we're seeing building permits down about 30%. Housing starts are down about 25%, uh, which measures like the overall construction activity. Um, so we're seeing the volume of activity in, this, in the housing sector collapse. And that's significant uh, because the volume, like I mentioned before, is what drives the economic activity, not price. People think, oh, my home prices aren't really falling. Everything's fine. The value of home prices is not what contributes to GDP. It's the volume of activity, okay? <clears throat> and why housing is so important is because historically in the year, sometimes even two years uh, before recession, it's weakness in housing that leads us into recession, okay? So first, monetary policy impacts the cyclical com economy first, housing, motor vehicles, and what we've seen are collapse in the volume of activity in housing. 
And it, particularly the focus is on new homes. So the new home construction market, um, even though people get confused by this because existing homes make up roughly 85% of sales in the real estate and it's new homes only roughly 15%, but all the economic activity comes from new homes, right? Because new homes require construction, right? They require labor and building materials. Um, and then the home gets moved into, it gets furnished uh, with rugs and carpets and home appliances and furniture, um, and it requires a manufacturing process, right? Yeah. So most of the, all the economic, um, economic activity happens in the new homes, uh, the, the, the homes, can, the con new construction market. Sorry. Um, so, yeah. So, it, it, yeah, if we, if we could just pause for a second. So, yep. like all these economic indications that you have been citing, uh, doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like there's a, a rosy picture for, for 2023. We would, I, I think, you know, like people were hoping after the COVID lockdown, the economy got back in, that consumption, everything was going to, and that doesn't sound like that's happening right now for 2023. Uh, like, we, uh, if you want to try and ask, try and answer, like, why is that? But, like, so, or if you want to move to, is all this leading to your a indication that there is a recession that we should be expecting happening in 2023? Uh, if you yeah, want to jump so, all the way to the end or whatever. Yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll quickly answer why that happened and then I'll continue where I was because that's going to sure. be that's right into 2023. So why that happened, you know, after, you know, the economy got shut down, reopened, we had this snapback in activity, which obviously boosted GDP. And then we had all the stimulus checks, right, which boosted growth. But those we're not producing anything, right? We're not being productive. We're just here's a stimulus check. I'm going to buy something, you know, activity goes up. And when those stimulus checks run out, activity comes back down. So we had a big boost in activity from the COVID induced stimulus that wore off. And then we had GDP from quarter two of 2021. That's when G uh, growth peaked and it's been gradually declining from a very high level ever since something like nine, 10%. So it's been a very gradual decline since quarter two of 2021. So almost two years now, but it's been so long because like I said, it, it, it was happening from such elevated levels. So growth has been declining over the past six months. I would say that the, the volume of activity, the downturns in the volume of activity have become sharper. So we've seen, like I said, new home sales have fallen about 40%. And that's leading to a slowdown in, in construction, um, in the new, new homes construction, which the demand for new homes drives the demand for durable goods. So your furniture and your home appliances and, and furn home furnishings and whatnot. So if, home, if demand for new homes slows, then demand for durable goods slows, which then shows up in manufacturing new orders. So we see a slowdown in manufacturing new orders, which we've seen. The ISM manufacturing report that came out this week, uh, new orders hit a new cyclical low of, I forget what the number is, maybe 43, but it's below 50. So contractionary and recessionary condition. If you look at new orders relative to inventory, that fell sharply. And that's a very important indicator because invent, uh, new orders relative to inventory is a, has a very good lead over production. Hear me now? We're good. Sorry about that. Uh, so 
No, you're good. Yeah, so you were you were um you were just you were just we were we heard you mention the the the, the that rate going down pat below 50 and which is recessionary contractionary. Yeah. So new orders is uh been and it's been contractionary for several months. I think I don't know the exact numbers here. I can I can look it up in my chart here, but for for several months it's been been contractionary. Let's see. Yeah, for for pretty much all of 20 or most of 2022 since May, it's been contractionary new orders. If you look at new orders relative to inventory, it has a, that has a very good lead on production, right? So if new orders is rising relative to the level of inventories, then production must increase. If new orders are falling relative to inventory, then production needs to slow. And we saw a sharp move down in new orders uh, relative to inventory in the December reporting period. So that's likely going to continue to pull production down. So the slowdown in housing has trickled into manufacturing sector. And that's where the longer leading indicators, so the monetary policy, monetary aggregates, housing, which also falls in the longer leading uh, sec- um, bucket filters through to manufacturing, which has a shorter lead time, somewhere in you know three to six month range, and that's when asset prices become at risk, right? Because that's when in o- over three to six months we should see the coincident indicators: income, production, consumption, employment start to move, and then asset prices are going to respond right before the coincident indi- indicators respond. So that's why it's so important. So the housing slowdown has filtered through to manufacturing. We're seeing this slowdown in new orders, which is causing production to pull down. And as this persists, eventually we're going to get that last leg in employment to come down. And I think we're going to get that uh, sometime in 2023. And, and, oh, I'm sorry, before we continue, where we are right now in growth. So if we were to take, income production consumption and employment right if we were to look at so the nber the national bureau of economic research they date recessions right they they officially date the business cycle so recession start date recession end date they look at those four coincident indicators but within those four segments they look at six indicators so they look at real income excluding transfer government transfer payments they look at real consumption they look at real retail sales. They look at uh, industrial production. Um, they look at non, non-farm payrolls. And they look at employment level. So six indicators. So if we were to put all those indicators together to, to form like a growth composite index, we're sitting right now in about a 1.5% range. So above zero. So we're not in recession, but we're about 1.5%, which is very close to zero which any kind of shock to the system can easily put the economy in recession. And then all the leading indicators from housing to manufacturing to to monetary policy, housing, manufacturing are continued pointing down with no signs of a bottom, which tells us over the next two, three quarters, the economy is going to continue cycling lower, which puts recession in high risk. So from, uh, from an investment standpoint, um, assuming everything you say takes place. I mean, it sounds like housing's not the place to be. It sounds like um, stocks might not be the place to be. Like, is cash, I mean, ultimately, is that your thought? Is cash is the place to be? Well, I mean, I guess it depends. Uh, 
of the type of investor you are, how conservative you are. Um, if you want to just be in cash, like actual cash, sit on the sidelines and kind of wait it out, like, yeah, you could do that. You, you, you'll avoid a, a big downturn in in stocks, right? So defensive sectors, though, if you want to be, you know, you have a portfolio, you want to be more defensive uh, as opposed to more aggressive, right? You want to stay away from the cyclical sectors. So you want to stay away from, you know, like industrial material sectors and you want to stay away from emerging markets and international stocks. You want to stay away from uh, small cap stocks uh, like the Russell 2000, which are more cyclical and more sensitive to growth. Um, you want to stay away from, you know, like commodities and, and energy and financials and, and things of that nature. Um, and you want to be more defensive, right? U.S. dollar, uh, gold falls in that bucket. Obviously, U.S. Treasury, um, U.S. Treasuries, right? Um, and then within the stock market, you have more defensive sectors like um, <clears throat> real estate. Now, don't get, let's not get confused, like real estate with like, home construction ETFs and home building ETFs and things like that. Those, those are cyclical. Those are going to take a hit, but real estates like REITs are, you know, long duration. They're more defensive utilities, healthcare, low volatility stocks. So on, on real estate, what do you mean by that? So like owning commercial real estate or, or residential real estate and renting it out. Is that, I mean, oh, is that what you're well, thinking? That, that's or? not, oh. that's not my, my uh, really my world. Um, but yeah, okay. like, yeah, yeah, owning physical real estate. I mean, even downturns in real estate. If we're going to see prices fall in twenty twenty three, which are already starting to fall, I mean, it's not like the stock market where, where it would take something catastrophic to see fifty, sixty percent declines, right? Maybe we get ten, fifteen, maybe it gets to twenty percent. Like you can withstand that if you have a property that's giving you income at the same time, that's going to offset some of that. So those are like real estate's like a longer duration asset. Asset. The longer the duration, the more defensive it is. So, so that that'd be a good place, right? Um, but yeah, to actually take advantage of it, though, I think once the market starts pricing in recession, U.S. dollar is going to get another spike higher. I think we've seen the bottom in treasury bonds. Those I think have a lot, a lot of room to move higher. I think those are going to be two of the big plays and, and variations of those um, in 2023. Gotcha. So after Monday, I'm going to load up on puts on the S and P, and then uh, actually I'll do it on the everything to get on the Russell over the S and P. Okay. The, okay. The, the yeah, Russell no, is more cyclical. It's going to fall more than the S and P. The S and P is driven a lot by those. Uh, long duration like tech stocks so it acts it's going to fall too but not as much as the more cyclical like russell because it's a little more defensive in that sense but so if you want to get more bang for your buck short the russell i like that i like that no thank you and you know people might be confused like why we're having this conversation i about the economy like it's because we're not like an investing podcast whatever but i think a lot of the people that lewis and i talk to for, for, we have a lot of there's a lot of raw information about the dollar about the global economy and everything and so i i really wanted to talk to somebody who lives and, and breathes this world that looks deeply into the nuts and bolts of this to kind of break this stuff down for us in a way that maybe if you are a lay person and you're worried that you know the dollar is going to go to zero tomorrow so you need to go buy a farm in idaho and and, and wait it out and, and load up on gold and everything. I don't, I don't think that's necessary. You don't need to be, 
um, you don't need to seriously. I mean, that's not, a, I, I actually, I, I was thinking about that. And when I was a kid, um, it was like 1998, 1999. I remember there was an el like the chief elder at our church, um, picked up his family and they bought a farm in Northern Wisconsin because Y2K was coming and he fully expected that everything was going to so I, that obviously didn't happen, but at the same time, like, you know, he, he's probably not, you know, he's probably living pretty good. The guy, he owns re real estate. He owns a farm, like no matter what happens, he'll be fine. So, but, but I, I, I don't think we need to be um, overly petrified of what's going to, like, it's going to suck. That sounds like, you know, recession like that. Yeah. But it's, it's not end of the world. Like there's, there's a balance here. Yeah. I think we're going to get a deep recession given the monetary policy, how, how fast it has risen. I mean, this has been the fast interest rates. The, the, the move higher has been the fastest shock in, in history. Um, and it has a longer leading lead time. Like I said, we're talking 12 months. I mean, Fed didn't start raising rates till March of 2022. So they haven't even hit the broader economy yet. They've hit the cyclical economy. It hasn't even hit the broader economy yet. So I think the sharper downturns are ahead of us. And I think because of monetary policy, it's likely going to be a deep recession. However, yeah, I don't think it's doomsday. Um, and I think people are going to be surprised when given the policy reactions to COVID were so extreme and caused these high level high levels of inflation. I think people are going to be surprised when they don't go back to that type of inflation and they go back to their normal, Hey, we cut rates, we do QE and it's kind of back to business as usual, so to speak. Right. Where we're back in this kind of disinflationary weak growth world. Right? I think people are going to be surprised when we kind of head back to normal uh, over the past 12, 13 years. How long do you think that cycle would take? So head back to normal is that, 12 months is that 36 okay. months i mean what what are you talking about oh uh, i don't know the like the, the how long the recessions are going to last though i'm not sure you can really accurately predict that so it's hard to say um yeah we could be talking 12 months could be talking 24 months probably something in that range i wouldn't expect it to be much longer than that but yeah those kind of things are hard to hard to figure out the, you know, the depth and duration of the recession. Yeah. Um, on uh, Russell 2000 and S&P 500, um, I hear people say, look out, they're going to go down. And my response is they've already gone down. Like they're down. Like anybody that's invested in the S&P 500 is off 20%, <clears throat> which is a ridiculous, you know, you think of your net worth or whatever, that's a giant, amount of money if you're broadly invested in the stock market so um i mean how much more can it go down is it going down 50 percent total i mean do we have another 30 percent to well, go do we have more than that to go like what uh what are your thoughts well here, here's the problem um i, I don't know how far they're going to go down 20 another 20 percent 30 percent 45 i don't know exactly that but the problem is the fact that they went down 20 percent in you know 20, 30%, depending on the index in 2022, has really nothing to do with the recession or, or growth falling off. It really was all driven by higher rates, which compressed uh, profit margins. Um, so it compressed, you know, had a caused a repricing of stock valuations. So the, the downturn we've seen in 2022, the 20% you're talking about is really due to higher rates. This next leg down is going to be 
it's going to be caused by uh, growth. It's going to be caused by deterioration and growth and, and recession pricing. So right now, it doesn't matter how far the market has gone down. It's all because of rates. The market hasn't priced in recession at all. And we can and we know that because you can look at credit spreads, which measure risk in, in the credit market. Um, <clears throat> normally, credit spreads to price in a recession, they're going to widen out to at least 300 basis points. And they've been kind of grinding higher over 2022, but they're under 200 basis points, which is they're not pricing in a lot of risk. So the recession has not gotten priced in whatsoever. So in my opinion, if what I'm saying plays out, there's a lot more downside ahead. This is this is such a key point. I feel like, yes, the S&P 500 went down 20%, but yeah, to your point, it, it, would, it reacted to one thing. There's all these other factors that haven't even gone into a, that have come into effect yet, and that's it, you know the S and P 500 is not going to care what it did in 2022. It's going to react to all these these other things. You know, I, like John Maynard Keynes famously said, you know, we, we are as we were trying to use price as an indication. He's like the the market can be crazier than you are solvent. It's really yeah. hard to time or using previous price indications to predict future ones. Yeah. Um, in t- so people, uh, it, I I feel like we kind of gotten to like so ba- maybe somebody's listening. They're like, well, like index funding is traditionally safe, and I can leave everything here, and and yeah, maybe something bad will happen in twenty twenty three, but you know, I just leave it alone, and you know, thirty years from now, I should be fine. Like, I mean, is that person basically right, or would you encourage people to, hey, you, you might want to consider. <clears throat> you know, looking at stuff a little more closely and being more specific in what you're investing in? I mean, it's mostly been right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. For, I don't know how many years now. I mean, over time, yeah, it has just gone up, but depends on the person, right? Depends on their time frame, right? Someone who's putting money into the market now is, you know, maybe looking to retire in five years. Well, that might not be a good, good, uh, good idea. Someone who's 20 years old, doesn't really want to learn, <clears throat> excuse me, at the ends and outs of, of investing and how the economy works. If you want to put money aside, yeah, it's probably going to be a good investment, right? So it really just depends on, on the person. Me, I'm always always been more active. So I would never just say, yeah, that's the best way. Just put money in the S&P and just leave it alone. But, you know, it has proven over 10, 20, 30 years to, to, do, to do very well. So it just depends on the person, your time frame, your goals, what you're, what you're trying to do. But for your personal investments, you would say cash or T-bills for the next 12 months or so. Is that? Yeah, to keep it very simple. um, Yeah, cash or if you can actually buy dollars, whether that be like a dollar ETF or, you know, you buy dollars in the Forex market, like you short the euro versus the dollar or the Aussie, whatever it is. Um, And then, yeah, treasury bonds, you can play the, the curve, right? Uh, both the long and the short end, they're going to fall for different reasons. Um, at some point, the short end will probably fall faster than than the long end when it starts pricing in future Fed rate cuts. Um, but yeah, I think very simply, those are going to do very well in, in 2023 at some point. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, uh, we'll go ahead and open anybody who's on the space. If you want to request a mic, happy to, you know, if Ryan, you got a little bit more time. Um, I think Lewis, you have a hard stop in like 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, yep. But 
if uh, anybody wants to hop on and, and ask a question, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, this has been really, really interesting, really enlightening. Um, like, you know, Twitter, there's all kinds of different opinions about what the future is going to hold, what the next 12 months are going to bring. You know, I've, I've seen some people even talk about, well, everybody's predicting a recession in 2023. And when has everybody been right at the same time? So, you know, just using that as like a, like a contrarian indication, like, nah, 2023, we're just going to breeze through it. And maybe, maybe after everybody, and then we'll get through 2023 and everyone's going to be like, oh, see, everything's hunky dory. And that's when it's going to hit you. <laughs> well, there's two, two things about that. One, um, I think if everyone is kind of expecting a recession, they have very good reason to do so, right? Just because everyone, the consensus is, is not always wrong. Right, they might be consensus consensus for consensus for a reason. However, <clears throat> all these economists may be and people may be uh, thinking, "Hey, recessions happen in 2023," but the market is not pricing that in, right? And that's what really matters. Like I said, credit spreads have not widened out. If you look at relationships, like in my report, I had like um, stocks, stock to bond relationships. They're still very elevated, whether it's the Russell to the you know, to long duration stocks, the S&P, the long duration stocks are still very elevated, meaning stocks are still outperforming bonds. If recession is getting priced in, the opposite would be happening. Stocks would be underperforming bonds. So so people can say like, oh, it's, it's too well predicted. It's not going to happen. Well, the market's not pricing it in like that. Economists and people can talk all they want, but the investor is not investing that way. And that's, to me, that's what matters most. Well, yes, why no, do you... Why do you think the investor is not counting? Like, I I would think that, I mean, just from this conversation, I'm like, holy crap, I better move all my money to cash. Um, it, it would this seem, is not investment advice. Yeah, I know. But um, it would seem like if everybody in the S&P or everybody on, on Wall Street is expecting recession, which kind of you hear people talk and everybody says that. Elon Musk says that, you know, um, the guy from Vanguard said, like, everybody's saying that same thing. Why is it not priced in? Like, well, why why aren't they, they well, making think, the, the same moves that I think most people listening to this conversation would be tempted to make? And I agree, it's not investment advice. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we got to make the distinction, distinction between economists and Wall Street analysts. Economists don't really have any invested interest in, you know, the investment bank and their clients or anything of that sort. Um, and they're the ones who are heavily pricing in a recession. Uh, Wall Street analysts at these big investment firms, a lot of them are not. Like earnings, um, <clears throat> earnings estimates for 2023 are, are up. They're not down. I forget the number. It's somewhere in like the 5% to 10% range. Like earning estimates are, are up for 2023 by most Wall Street analysts. Like that, like, so half the... Half the people are pricing in it, but the Wall Street analysts are not. And then there's just, you know, people don't have, have a process in what they do. Like everything I try to do, it has to, it's like a logical process, right? Monetary policy influences housing, which then flo floats through manufacturing, which then hits the broader economy, which then hits the asset price. Like there's a logical sequence that happens every cycle. And regardless, regardless of how different the cycles are, you always see how monetary policy to housing to manufacturing to services like there's always that sequence there's always that flow right people don't have that process and they get kind of latched on to you know narratives that 
kind of fit, you know, what they want to happen. Um, so it's crazy that wall street isn't like the CEO of Walmart had said on his most recent earnings call that they way overshot their demand projections. They, they, they have too much supply cost. Like my, my local Costco has stacks of tires into the lobby. They way over ordered. They're not ordering more uh, tires. They have, and like my target up the road has trailers out in the parking lot full of stuff that they can't fit in the stores. Like they, so, every, they grossly overestimated. 